0: Okay, welcome to the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. This is my podcast. It is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. Uh, Today, I am talking with uh, author Vanessa Veselka. Uh, Vanessa, according to her bio of Portland, Oregon, has been at various times a teenage runaway, a sex worker, a union organizer, and a student of paleontology. Uh, and writer. Her work appears in GQ, Bitch, The Atlantic, Tin House, Ziziva. Uh, Her GQ article, Truck Stop Killer, was included in the Best American Essays of 2013. Uh, Her first novel, Zazen, won the 2012 Penn Bigam Prize for Fiction. Uh, I have, uh, at times, described Zazen as uh, Portlandia if it was written by David Simon of the Wire. and uh, Vanessa and I are friends. Uh, I was trying to remember when we met. Do you remember? I, I, it was it was in the late 90s. I remember it was Labor Notes in Detroit in the late 90s. And we hung out a lot during the Powell strike in 2000. I was up there helping. You were there helping. I want to talk about, about writing eventually. But first, I, I just wanted to, uh, if you would indulge me in uh, Going through the incredible chronology of your life, um, <laughs> <laughs> because like you're one, you're one of those people that I mean I feel like your bio of the list of things sort of it it, it, uh, short sells the range of weird things that you've done. And uh, you're one of those people that every time I talk to you, there's like, wait a minute, you did what now? Um, So I just, can can we take it from the top? (laughs) Okay,
1: we can try. I mean, I think the thing to say about the, just to say about the bio is one of the things as, uh, as a writer, I really dislike that sometimes happens anyway is, you know, people get reduced, you know, it reduced to a couple of bullet points. I had two really interesting charismatic parents and uh and I, it's sort of left me a uh, long-standing mistrust of charisma in general but um <laughs> you know very interesting uh very smart parents and I, we moved a lot they were not together very long uh and um I grew up mostly from 9 to 15 in Greenwich Village uh but I also grew up Watching television get made, which was a very weird uh, way to see the world as a preteen, and and so forth. Um,
0: Hold on. So, so this is nine nine to fifteen is puts you in the late seventies, early eighties. Yes. Yes. Uh, I moved so, to
1: Greenwich Village in nineteen seventy eight, and it was, you know, the heyday of sort of disco, and you know, was post obviously the sort of flowering of gay rights. It was also the early onset of the AIDS stuff, but that hadn't really come in yet. There was the Hellfire was like three blocks away from us, and you know,
0: sex was the Hellfire everywhere. Club is the- famous SM club.
1: Yeah, and and you know, it was all there was all people went everywhere on roller skates and short shorts and
0: uh, and were you at age 10 and 11 hanging out at CBGB's with the Ramones all the time?
1: No, I was not. I was uh, <laughs> I was I was roller skating and uh, I was ha- were you, were, hanging out looking were you a lot aware older. Of the Hellfire Club? Yes, because my school was on the corner of Hudson and Christopher. And, you know, the erotic bakery was like a block away and there was, you know, like bondage clips everywhere and there were jokes on the playground about it all the time. There was just a culture that we were around that had a lot of BDSM stuff in it. And, uh, yeah, it was just everywhere.
0: OK, wait. So before we move on, I have a story. Uh, when when you and I both went to Reed College at different times, when you were at Reed, did you have the occasion to know Darius Rajali? no. Uh, okay, is a political science professor who is one of the world's foremost experts in the study of torture. Oh, and okay. one of his one of his amazing uh, 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 party stories is about how he came across this like hidden classified military interrogation manual uh, about like how to torture someone in an interrogation in in a way that wouldn't leave a mark. Uh, or maim them, you know, so some of the some of the precursors to waterboarding and a lot of the stuff that that, you know We have ended up seeing all it uh, for years and so he was trying to investigate the provenance of this torture manual and uh, That was written by someone named Richard Croucher and in the course of his investigations he discovered that Richard Croucher was the pseudonym of Uh, one of the founders of the Hellfire Club, uh, who was a medical doctor, Dick Crusher, get it, Uh, who wanted to write an S&M manual uh, and couldn't get it published and found this military-like mercenary publishing company that was willing to publish the same content as a torture manual. Wow.
1: I'll tell you another story. I'm going to see your story, I'll raise you another. Uh, Good. So, um, dominatrix work, which is often... You know, the the word on the street of it for years was like, oh, you know, just sort of I mean, OK, I'm trying to think about how blue I want to go with this. OK, so backing up. I, I,
0: I did have an episode of this podcast that was devoted extensively to fisting. So OK, OK. That's, well, that's so OK, is.
1: so dominatrix work, you know, um, I remember thinking, uh, you know, as a as a kid and a teenager, you would hear I knew women who were dominatrixes and who would make money. And when you'd ask them about it, they'd say, oh, well, you know, they, they would sort of brag about how, you know, you don't have to do anything. But the truth is, in a lot of cases, you do end up doing like hand jobs and other, like there's another side of it that comes in. Um, But one of the things that was really interesting to me as I got to know more about that was that a lot of the people who were into really, really hardcore uh, you know, BDSM stuff, uh, who were really into the sort of physical side of it more than the psychological side of it, um, were ex-vets. And uh, because a lot of them at the time, because it's late 80s, you know, were like Vietnam vets and things like that, a lot of them had been in semi-torturous situations where they'd actually sexualized what was happening to them. They weren't actually being sexualized in the torture, but they sexualized the sensation uh, to kind of mentally get through it. And so we saw a lot of vets who really, you know, had ended up with very different, you know, needs after that. Anyway, that was a real interesting <laughs> eye opener. So if you're talking about torture and sex, I mean, that's, that's also, I think, another side that it can go the other way. It doesn't have to be used. You know what I mean? That, that, that people. There's a,
0: there's a long and proud history of a, of a dialectical relationship between torture and sex.
1: Yes. Yes. That's not consensual necessarily. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, okay. So, and your mom was making television.
1: Yes. She was making. What, te- was,
0: that? what was that all about?
1: What was that all about? Oh, she was a writer and she was really smart. And, uh, it was, uh, she was in, uh, television. Her career was kind of taking off at the time. And so it gave me a bird's eye view into, you know, hanging out. I spent for a couple of years, you know, I spent five days a week after school at 30 Rockefeller center. And I would be there sometimes till two or three AM. And
0: this is like, like, Daytime programming? No. What, what kind of television are we talking about? Well, what kind of shows?
1: Her, her name is Linda Ellerby. and she okay. was uh, a reporter. Um, and uh, she is a reporter. And uh, she had, uh, at that time, she had a very, very popular news show that was on at 1.30 in the morning. And it was the first like kind of big cult-following late-night News show. It came up right about the same time as uh, Dateline had started, and uh, which was during the, you know Iran hostage crisis, I believe. And um, somewhere right around in that time period, but it was qu- sort of not ready for primetime news in some ways. They followed. They were in the same studios or just above Saturday Night Live. It's where nightly News shot their stuff on the same day. and then at night after as soon as nightly news was done, the overnight crew, the show which was called NBC News Overnight, came
0: in. And so, so what you're saying is that Anchorman 2 is basically a documentary about your mom?
1: No, but you know what is? Uh, Murphy Brown was based
0: on my mom. And does your mom get kickbacks on that forever?
1: No, no, she doesn't. But Diane English came out and followed her around for a few weeks. And it was always, and mom's been on the show. And it was, you know, one of, on the pilot or one of the first ones. It was a lot of inside jokes around it. You know, every week I went, I would watch the rehearsals for Saturday Night Live all week because they would rehearse and put the show together and uh you know i would watch david letterman tape and i would watch cuz i mean that was sort of the sequence we'd come in early they'd start writing the show and i'd be wandering around the studios with not much to do i'd do a little bit of homework and then i was sort of tagging along after the makeup people who would do um You know, who would do Letterman, who would do Saturday Night Live, who would do whatever shows, you know, we're rehearsing and going up all the time. So I saw lots of rehearsal and lots of live television. And then we cleared out right when the Today Show came in. So crossover with the Today Show Green Room people, too, wouldn't be half asleep, you know, sometimes. And
0: so as a a comedy nerd, do you have any, like, memories of uh, me being a comedy nerd, not you, uh, of, like, you know, amazing mom snl moments by off camera behind the scenes my mom stuff.
1: was on saturday night live at one point uh and that was weird you know i mean i mean they, no they asked her to be on she turned it down then they had her as a character on julie louis dreyfus played her and uh and that was pretty funny
0: uh that's awesome it uh uh so okay so and where is your dad when all this is happening
1: uh, well, he was moving around to, um, you know, he was in Alaska sometimes. He was in New Jersey sometimes, you know. Uh, he had gone back to Alaska by then, actually, for a couple of years. And then he ended up in Texas and then in Virginia. So.
0: And so at 15, you leave Greenwich Village. Why and how?
1: Well, I left because I was unhappy. Um, and how was, you know kind of, you know, it's one of those situations where I was dating somebody who was like 22. Uh, and and from the outside, you would look at it and think like, that poor 15-year-old. But I was actually far more troubled than he was. He was supposed to go to Rikers Island for some kind of petty crime, something. And I talked him into jumping bail and hitchhiking with me down in New Orleans. And what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Right. i am now talked him into not only jumping bail, but taking a 15-year-old across multiple state lines. Uh, you know, what could go wrong? Um, I, uh, I wasn't <laughs> with him very long. I mean, I think it kind of ended about a, a month later. But um, but that was, you know, that was sort of the impetus in some ways was...
0: Yeah. Okay, so then, then you uh, spend a while... Hitching, which gets us into the story of the, of the 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 truck stop killer, which we can come back to in a minute. But then, and uh, but not just to 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 put a pin in for the listeners, you at fifteen apparently uh, are hitching across the country and is get away from someone who later turns out that they were probably a serial killer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah.
0: So OK. So then how? No big deal. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's good that we can all laugh about this now. Um, yeah, uh, it's not funny.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> what were we saying before about things that are the uh, things that are horrible? You only laugh funny? at
1: what's not funny. Yeah,
0: right. Um, so uh, OK. So then how do you get out of hitchhiking? What's the, what's the end of that story?
1: Well, you know, the end of that story is just that I was hitchhiking in the Northeast and I got picked up in a snowstorm by some kids from Hampshire College. And right before I'd left home, I'd actually gone through all this like three weeks of mental health counseling and assessments and testing to figure out, you know, it was kind of like, should we put her in a mental institution or... And, the, you know, the, I was I was kicked out of a boarding school that sort of mandated... the The deal that was cut was that if I agreed to to leave and withdraw rather than getting, you know, they would let me withdraw instead of being expelled if I would agree to go for a sort of psychological testing, you know, uh, to sort of find out how I could be helped. And I went to a place called the Cambridge Institute or something and they ran, I remember they ran a bunch of tests on me and I, you know, it was the first of like 25 times I took the MMPI um and then there were like IQ tests and there were you know finish the picture in this story you know and um these which for me as a 15 year old was a very as i think probably for most 15 year olds a very see-through way it like you know it's like i have no idea what you will be deriving from this you know i mean it's just it's easy to toy with people um and they give me. They just give me aptitude tests and academic tests and all and, sorts of and was things.
0: You, was your experience of yourself at this point? Of was it. Uh did you experience yourself as being out of control or or troubled or whatever? Or did you feel like you were just living your life and the system was getting you down, man? <laughs> I was definitely troubled. I mean, I was I
1: was angry. I was upset. I was cutting myself. I was, uh, I would, you know, one of the things I've done. Man, you con- were
0: into cutting before cutting was cool, dude.
1: That's right, damn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> I was doing a lot of stuff like that. But, you know, the other thing was I also always have had kind of accent- some experience eccentric um, habits that I've learned to, you know, control a little better. But, uh, like one of the things I used to do, although this wasn't why I was there, although it showed up a little bit is, um, you know, throughout my life, you know, there were different times where I would decide to take a walk and be gone three days. Um, and when I was hitchhiking and then later when I was sort of in and out in a more transient way of different places, you know, I would still do that. I would sort of like go walk for days sometimes. And sometimes that meant I'd be walking and then I'd think of a friend, I'd go there, I'd crash, I'd keep walking, you know. Um, Sometimes it would mean that I would sort of just fall off a map and buy a one-way ticket somewhere and come back three years later. That happened in Vienna a couple times. You know, I I, I basically finally got to the point where I realized um, that that was a concerning behavior to other people around me. But it really never occurred to me that it was in some ways. I went to boarding school for eight months is, uh, and, um, and, you know, they thought I was going to kill myself and that's why they were pulling me out primarily, um, which had not really occurred to me. <laughs> you know, I'm not. Um, but that was a concern because of the cutting, although I was just mad. Um, and so, you know, they... I remember being in that school around people who really did come from money and, and how they have a sense of alienation in a different place that was just different, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It was There was a very different levels of culture about that. But when I went to the Cambridge Institute, basically, you know, we came in for our final assessment of, you know, where am I going to go? Am I going, am I going to the Brattleboro retreat? Am I going to, you know, and, and their assessment was that I needed to be in college. And, um, and so we tried, you know, looking, they put us onto a couple of colleges that would take someone like me started down that road, but things just blew up at home and I left. And so a year later, when I was hitchhiking back through the Northeast, I got picked up by some kids at a college and they had sort of said, Oh, you should apply to go here. And it was Hampshire college. And so I did almost as a joke. And I got in. So that kind of gave me a way I felt like I could sort of return with honor. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, well, I got into college. It was, you know, but that didn't last either. So that lasted like a semester. And I pretty much just walked off campus.
0: When I was looking at colleges, I visited Hampshire. And and the funny thing about my college tour was that that like every college that I visited, someone that I met, this is like in the early days of what people were calling political correctness. Mm -hmm. And so... uh, so at every college tour, people would be like, this school is the most politically correct place in the world. And then I got to Hampshire and it really was. <laughs> like, people were like, if you are not a bisexual anarchist vegan, you have to live somewhere else. Right. You know, <laughs> right. We're quarantining you. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well,
1: you know, the thing that was weird about that was here I was and, you know, it, I'd just hitchhiked about fifteen thousand miles in the country and been living on the street in very scary ways and and you know dodging all sorts of really dangerous situations and difficulties, um, and then I was suddenly in an affluent, you know, politically correct uh, school where I was two and a half years younger than you know their incoming students for the most part, but I had had radically different life experiences. And I wasn't getting or doing any counseling. I mean, there was—it no, was just the biggest non sequitur. And I look back now, and I go, "Well, of course I couldn't make the leap to be there. I couldn't make it mean anything."
0: Okay, so you bounced out of Hampshire, and then—and then what and happened?
1: Okay, so I bounced out of Hampshire. Now, part of the other reason I was bouncing out of Hampshire, as you say, is that I became—I fell totally, obsessively, insanely, unstoppably in love with the guitar. And all I did was play guitar. Like at that point, it's just like, I think every guitarist seems to hit a point where they go from sort of playing or sort of playing something to just like leave me in my room for three years and I'd be perfectly happy, you know? And I kind of hit that. And it was just as powerful as the way people, you know, fall in love and fall off the planet. I mean, I, I with me, I really hit that with the guitar. So I didn't want to do anything but play guitar. So.
0: You basically had a lesbian relationship with
1: the guitar. I had a lesbian relationship with the guitar, yes. Um, and uh, I went, uh, I was back in New York. I stayed for the next six months at my mom's place. Uh, and then I was living in the squats. I was, uh, I'd was. i already known people down in the Lower East Side in the squats since like 84, because I remember staying in some of the squats long before they were organized enough to be safe in any means. Um, and then I'd also known a lot of the people who became part of the Squatter's Rights Movement down there. Uh, I ended up from, you know, probably age 17, I'm trying to think, I lived with I lived in a loft with like 22 people at one point where everything was just sort of subdivided, classic New York situation, everything was subdivided by sheets, you know, and everybody had like a six foot by six foot space. Um, but then, yeah, so I started to like wait tables or do various things. Um, I lived in the squats and then I went to Europe at one point. I just bought a one-way ticket because they were really cheap I mean, you could get like $150 one-way ticket, standby or otherwise. So, so now we're getting into like 17, 18.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, uh, and then what's the next, uh, at some point you had up back in Alaska, right?
1: Yeah, well, but before that, uh, okay, so when I went to Europe, uh, I ended up, you know, I didn't really have money after, you know, I mean, I kind of ran out of everything I had by about a month, uh, after a month, but I was there two and a half years. So I had to figure out that time. And um, and that was the first place that I made my living playing guitar. And so it was pretty profound for me. And, and you know, I, I hitchhiked all around Yugoslavia and Turkey in '87. Um, and that was also very, very interesting to be in, um, in Turkey at the time, uh, and traveling and in Vienna. And so, and in the former Yugoslavia, I mean, it was just a lot of, a lot of, uh, I don't know, I grew a lot in that time, but it's also where I sort of became an artist. And so, um, particularly in Vienna. Um, and then I came back and I decided I needed to give up music, that it had destroyed my life. And I moved to Alaska because I decided that that would be where you would bury all music. And, uh, that was when I was 21. And, uh, so I moved up there for like a year and a half and, uh, then about, 93, I was in Seattle and I was playing music again um, because I had failed to give it up properly. <laughs>
0: OK, so then you're back in Seattle playing music again in, in 93, you say, right? Uh, so you're in the grunge scene. Yeah, uh,
1: I, I didn't think of it that way, but yes. <laughs>
0: uh, I we, we went to uh, Seattle to, uh, from Portland when we were at Reed. Uh, it was a, uh, the spring of 94 uh, we, uh, to visit my wife's now wife, then friends, cousins, and happened to arrive and decided to go get dinner at the crocodile cafe the night that Kirk Cobain killed himself oh god and i was not particularly a Nirvana fan so like we're sitting there eating hamburgers and gradually news crews are coming in coming up to me are like are you okay how are you doing oh God! And i was like you know i'm i'm fine what's what's going on everybody you know right okay so then so you're playing music uh and then and then what happens
1: um, I was playing music for a while. I was touring. I was, you know, sometimes other, there was, some stuff was put out by other people. Some stuff was put out by me. Um, I was not very happy artistically, but, um, you know, I sort of had this, it was my big experimentation in Seattle was, can I stay in one place? And, you know, I really, I sort of took it very seriously when I was there. And like, I don't know what it feels like to stay in one place. Like, no matter what happens, I'm going to stay here for a long time. And I spent 11 years there. Um, and, uh, you know, but I think that had that not been my experiment, I probably wouldn't have been there that long. But that was my experiment. And um, during that time, um, I had also... So playing music, working in restaurants, traveling, um, and then uh, I guess when I got involved with, I I'd always been pro union, but I like most workers my own age, you know, none of us are in unionized jobs for the most part, you know, and uh, and it it was. Uh, when I was in, involved in WTO to the degree that I was involved in it, uh, which is that you know I sort of became really aware of it about three months before it happened and, and started to track and pay attention and uh, learn more. And uh, well and that's one of the things I really appreciated about coming about that coming up was the level of coordinated education that was going on leading Mm -hmm. up to it for six months. So different than what I've seen in a lot of things like, I mean, it really was, there were some really remarkable, at least in Seattle, you know, there was a lot of education coming into a very complex issue about trade, you know. And uh, I had gone through periods of squatters, rights stuff. I'd always, I I had a kind of back and forth with my experience with radicalism and anarchists or communists or RCP or this or that, you know, and uh, at times just, you know, working with people and at times just feeling like this is all fucked and I'm not going to be a part of this. Um, So really sort of ambivalent, relationship back and forth at times with left activism, but, uh, you know, all pretty much within the context of the left. And, and then I think that, um, what interested me about the labor movement, uh, as, you know, as I went through all the WTO stuff, it was a very big education for me in a lot of ways. And I felt like I was in, um, you know, socially, culturally, I looked like the kind of person who, you know, would be on this sort of vegan anarchist uh, side of the fence, you know, I'm, I'm sort of throwing these around, they are reductions, of course, but, you know, on that side of the fence. But like, my actual temperament was closer to labor, you know, and so it, it, my skills of communication, I, I was pretty good at talking between groups. Uh, and David Solnit was one of the people who was really involved with all of that. And I, you know, I watched him a lot uh, during that time really do remarkable things between those groups, um, and have a way with it that I respected, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah. So I got, after that, I just, I decided to try, I needed a job and I had been talking to ILWU and I've been thinking about, you know, organizing people in my own age group. And, uh, I was looking right at the Amazon warehouse. So I went and got a job at the Amazon warehouse and, uh, you know, thought I'll get a job and then let's see if, let's see what can be organized. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, I remember going through all the orientation meetings and all the sort of ways that you're being sort of, uh, tracked, you know, track, tracked for your, spe- you know, your special, your special level. And I remember, kind of like, you know, intentionally displaying one thing or another. Um, and I remember in that case, at one point, you know, I was really, because I'd worked as a, worked in a library, I was a really good shelf reader. So when they gave me the test for like accuracy and speed for, for reading a long series of numbers, I tested very high, so I was going to be a picker, but I did but I didn't want to be, a, once I got in the warehouse, I realized that being a picker, you don't have a chance to ever speak with anybody. And that basically... There's this whole huge packing side that, you know, once you cross that line from the sort of, you know, green-haired identity politic, you know, invested people who were there, you were basically into, you know, African-American, Latino, Asian workers on the other side. I mean, there's like a wall between them in a lot of ways. but. Uh, but on that other side in packing, you were closer to people. There was you're also in contact with like teams or, or whoever was doing the trucking site as an organizer. Those things are important to like be able to be in a lot Wait of a places. Are you
0: suggesting that at times big corporations have used race to divide workers uh, <laughs> uh, against each other?
1: No, no, no. I'm just saying, you know, unions were really good for people back in the day, but not for us. I'm kidding. Uh-huh. That's a joke. Yeah. Um, so. So I had to figure out how to get over to the other side when, you know, everything about me said, You're, you belong in the white green haired picker side. And right. I had to figure out, well, how am I going to get them to move me? So I went and I made up a story that I felt like people in that world could get behind, which was that... Dude, I was really into river rafting and I was like, it was where I sort of found my, you know, my spiritual self and I wanted to like train to go down the Colorado again and I had shitty upper body strength and I really, really needed to work on my upper body strength because I really wanted to take this trip this summer and I was a temp anyway. And, you know, I went on and on about it and like, could they move me over to the packing side to work on my upper body strength so I could go whitewater rafting more often? They bought it. I moved, (laughs) you know?
0: And uh, how did the organizing go?
1: Oh, it did. I mean, it did and it didn't. You know, given the context for what was happening, you know, as a more experienced organizer now, I look back and I go, like, yeah, I, you know, it it did reach. It reached what it could reach in that time and place, which is all I think when you're organizing, you can really look at. You know, um, there were amazing people with real issues who got together and talked about them and tried to figure out where they were willing to go with it. And I was not part of that. It was not my role to really be part of that. You know, I I sort of, I, I got them talking face to face, but ultimately it was their issues. It was their place and they needed to figure out what they wanted to do. Um, and there were a lot of things that, that from the outside, there was an enormous union drive going on with Watchtech simultaneously. And they had, they had assumed that, you know, they were uptight about the warehouse and we were getting searched on the way. Here's the thing. We're getting searched on the way in, not on the way out. Right. Cause they're looking for leaflets, not stealing. So it's, uh, but you know, things like that were going on all the time. And, um, I'm probably talking too much about this. Sorry.
0: No. it's And then, so, just, uh, I I, want to dig in more, but but just, we have to check off the rest of the boxes. So, uh, were you a sex worker paleontologist or a paleontologist sex worker at the same time?
1: (laughs) No, you know, the thing about uh, sex work... Lap
0: dances for dinosaurs?
1: Yeah, No, I actually was inver- invertebrate. Um, I was never a paleontologist. I studied paleontology. Um, I would have had to have gone to school a lot longer and done a lot more work to be a paleontologist. And then if I'd done that, I wouldn't be talking to you because I'd be 10 times cooler than this. And I'd I'd be out there talking about like brachiopods, but I'm not, I'm here. We're here. I was trying to apply for jobs. I couldn't get hired to do anything. This is about eight years ago. And it was really demoralizing. Like there was no restaurant jobs. There was no, I couldn't get hired as a bus. I couldn't get, you know, and as I'm older and I've got a kid and I've got time constraints, it's really getting worse. Meanwhile, you know, it's very hard if you've been a union organizer for five years to get another kind of job and anything that, you know, and meet people like, oh, you were a union organizer. That's, that's great. No, <laughs> you know, we're not hiring you. And then I, the, I've had
0: that, I've, I've had that problem. I feel like it's like being an ex-con. Where, yes, like, it is.
1: It's a lot like being an ex-con. Like, and the irony is that the only people who really want to hire you are people who realize that that's essentially crosses over into management skills. And you're like, oh, you know.
0: Right. I mean, so. I just feel like, like I found myself in interviews being like, the only thing that I know how to do is destroy your business. Right. Well, I'm out of the game. <laughs> I've retired. Right. Until you fuck with me. <laughs>
1: Oh, I didn't finish paleontology.
0: Oh, sorry. Carry okay.
1: On. So um, when I was in uh, Seattle, I, I felt totally in love with paleontology and, and geology. And um, I took a class and, and it just really hit so many levels. It was like the place in science where good science could meet, um, you know, the imagination and a bigger picture in a lot of ways. And I think what's so unique about invertebrate paleontology is that in some ways it, it often just leads to extinction patterns, but in some ways it's of necessity bigger picture. There, It just, it tends, because you're talking about the oceans a lot of times, you know what I mean? And so it's just, um, you know, vertebrates have, a, you know, I don't know. I mean, dinosaurs and things like that are a pretty... Uh, there's a lot of sort of function and morphology. I mean, not that you don't get that in shells and things like that, but but a lot of times when you're the smaller the creature, the bigger the range, the more global the actual issues are. And and it is big picture stuff. It can't be separated from that. And I was fascinated by that. And uh, there was a professor who was a really well-known paleontologist at UW. And, uh, he let me into his split grad level class and I just, uh, and he took me on some digs and I learned an enormous amount from him. So I had the rare pleasure and problem of functioning in some ways within grad students when I was not, you know, probably shouldn't have been there, but I learned a lot about paleontology and a lot more than, you know, there aren't undergrads in paleo. So it was always the big, like, I love, you know, you get torn between lovers. Like I love rock and roll. I love paleontology. I just can't decide. And it went on like that for a long time. Okay.
0: Now I'm done. Uh, How how do you feel about the paleo diet? (laughs) (laughs) Are you serious? No. Do you Um, you really want to know? (laughs) So so you, you were a union person for five years. You worked with the longshoremen. Uh, and then you and were with
1: 1199
0: SAU 1199 in Washington, which is yes. health healthcare union, right? Yes. Uh, and then you leave that. And then at some point, and then you, you become a writer.
1: Yes. And, uh, oh. I went back to college in the interim and I had a kid and, uh, and so I went to Reed as a much older student than you were as an adult. And, uh, finally, after having been to six colleges, I spent three years at Reed and uh, and uh, graduated was graduated from Reed in two thousand and nine.
0: Um, so, what uh, the the the? Do you feel like do you feel like you have settled? Do you know what I mean? Like your 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 life has taken you through so many different things and places and periods. Do you feel like that's sort of your natural register, and you're comfortable with that, or do you feel like you? we're sort of wrestling with something that you have resolved for the time being. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: what were you trying to prove? That's the question.
1: Uh, yeah. No, you know, it, it, this this reminds me of a kind of assumption or question I would run into a lot, which is this question of rebellion. Um, and uh, I actually don't think of myself in any way as being rebellious or a rebel that like there seems to be an assumption of people who have what appears from the outside to be sort of big or romantic or adventurous looking elements to their lives, um, that there's sort of a rebellious, streak or nature in it. I kind of feel like probably if you ask most people like that, what they're looking for is quiet, not adventure, but you know, that's an internal thing. You know, you're looking for, I'll tell you, here's an example. I spent a month last year, um, working, uh, as a trainee on a tall ship, an 1813 recreation tall ship called the Brig Niagara up in the Great Lakes. And I mean, it's pure slavery, essentially not much different than it ever was in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of, uh, you know, really rough physical elements to that experience, not the least of which is never sleeping and sleeping poorly when you do. And, you know, all sorts of things I could go into another time. But um, so it, it wasn't like it was an adventure. It was, it was it, every single element of it was kind of awful. And yet, it added up to something I wanted to do again, and I couldn't figure out why. Because literally every single aspect of it, I'd found uh, unpleasant and at times just hideous. And yet, it added up to something I wanted to do again. And I was thinking about that because I just I applied to be an apprentice, and uh, I'm going back in two months to start a uh, you know six week apprenticeship uh, on the ship. Uh, and so I'll be in the snow on this brig in Lake Erie, probably enclosed in ice, sleeping on this ship, uprigging and redoing, you know, doing all the rigging in the snow and the ice. So why, why do you do things like that? And, and what I would like to do some days do something like get on the Bark Europa as a deckhand and go around, go to Antarctica, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, th- that work is out there if you're you know, in the position to, uh, <laughs> slave properly. And, um, but at the same time, I was like, well, why am I doing this? I'm not actually, it looks like I'm an adventure seeker, and I'm not, I'm not a thrill sticker. I'm extremely anxious. I'm overly cautious. Uh, I don't have any of that like type a whatever personality about it. Um, and I realized, you know, it quiets me down and it quiets me. And, and more and more I thought about it. I was like, Everybody needs places where they are really, really unexceptional and where like they can work hard and they're just going to be more unexceptional. I'm really, really unexceptional in kung fu. I'm really unexceptional working as a, you know, trainee deckhand and I love those things. Um, so, you know, I don't know what restlessness or resolve ends up being. I don't think, um, that's how I think of the question.
0: Um, that's great. Thanks. So, okay. So now let's talk about books. Uh, did you feel like starting to work on your first novel was a, departure from what you had been doing, your, the, or was it just sort of the logical culmination and extension of the journey that you had already been on?
1: I'd always expected that I'd end up writing. Um, I have kept journals since I was five years old. I mean, literally, I wrote my first quote book when I was six, you know, <laughs> it still exists. Um, I, I oriented myself as a writer, as an observer, um, my entire life. But what happened was that the first times I started writing, uh, in my first forays in a publishing, I really hated the sound of what I wrote. And, uh, you know, I'd sold a couple pieces to women's magazines, and they paid me really good money, and I wanted to slit my throat. I felt like the cadences of sort of... (sighs) Self-referential, you know, irreverent, cutesy bullshit had a particular rhythmic, you know, particular cadence that I could just hear it. I could hear it all the time. I could see it in everything. And participating in it just even though it only took me one or two articles to go like, I can't do this. Like, I know exactly what you want and I can't do it. And, uh, you know, it seemed on the outside like, well, God, it'd be so much smarter to do like one of these every six weeks than to wait tables five days a week and still be broke, you know. Um, But I couldn't make myself do it, you know. It was just too depressing. And uh, that's not a function of me feeling like I was above the work or better than the work. It was literally a function of me not being able to do it, not being able to do it. And so the writing that I'd gotten attention for, you know, writing is what got me into college six times, you know what I mean? I'm excellent at applying. (laughs) And uh, the writing that had gotten me attention was, was an artifice that I could see through and I couldn't participate in it. And so I just stopped. So I wrote one piece in the 90s that has still been that continues to resurface and actually is still brought up in feminist circles and has been, I mean, it's amazing to me. It came out of bitch. I wrote a piece called The Collapsible Woman. It's been retranslated, used in rape centers in Oakland quite a bit, apparently. But, you know, I wrote that in 96. It was the first and only piece I wrote that meant anything to me, but I still didn't really feel up to it. Now, after I had my kid and like 10 years later, I started writing fiction. Uh, and here's what I have to say about fiction. because it was, I really think for somebody to be a good fiction writer, um, they need to be completely bored by their own personal story. I think there's like, everybody's so into memoir and they're so into this, like, well, it's all kind of biographical anyways. it's like bullshit. It's not all biographical anyway. I mean, that's one way of doing things, but I kind of think it's horrific. Uh, sometimes, you know, I think that that's too strong, horrific, but you know, I, I feel like I wasn't able to write fiction until I'm calling
0: Dave Eggers right now. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I wasn't able to write fiction until my interest in my own storyline was was so burnt out as a circuit that I could use all the ingredients and throw away the storyline. Like I could use the detail, but I didn't fucking care about my story you know it didn't need to come out better if it didn't i have no curiosity about it you know and and that's when suddenly for the first time i could write fiction whereas beforehand it always did sort of like feel like a sock puppet like you know why would i write this in fiction versus non-fiction i mean what is it what's the difference you know um so then, you know, I was very fortunate. I didn't start writing till I was 36 or 37, and everything that I wrote after that was getting published. And so it was a very, compared to music and other things I'd done, it, was, it seemed very, you know, oh, wow, I've got something that actually is successful that somebody likes that I do, as opposed to you, you know, organizing or playing songs or, you know.
0: Right. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting uh that you say that because uh, what, what you're saying about the details, because like reading Zazen, I you know I spent much of it wondering whether it reminded me more of Portland or more of Seattle, uh, and and it's set in this world that's sort of like five minutes into the future, and uh, and I was curious about sort of what what the what the process was of compiling the details to construct that premise.
1: So I don't, I didn't compile any details to just It started and ended with the character's voice. It's a very, you know, uh, from the very, the first pages of Zazim were the first things I wrote. And I had no idea what I was writing. I had no concept. I just literally started free writing her voice. And actually what's in the first few pages in the first chapter is is what I wrote like the first day, pretty much. Um, It was very accessible, um, to me. And it was, you know, uh, I was in, and what was powerful to me at the time about it is her voice felt like a weapon to me. I mean, I felt like there was a, like I could say things that, so one of the things, uh, the character of Della is smarter than I am, um, and that's a hard thing to explain. But she really is. And uh, and one of the things I realized on page two, you know, I mean, like very, very quickly, was I was writing on this thing and pulling on all these details I had um, from all these very different areas, from geology, from union organizing, from you know, red diaper baby stuff, you know, whatever. I was pulling on all these different things that I had, um, but that, um, I had this, and then I stopped and I was like, nobody's gonna get this, you know what I mean? Like, not like I, I was above other people's ability to, you know, but it's just, it's very specialized information in some ways. And, uh, or the way she talked about it, it was like, well, h- well, well, maybe nobody will get this. And then I thought about it and I was like, you know, I'm fine with people getting 80% of it. You know, when somebody's a geology student or a paleontology student reads that book, they're going to get things that you don't get necessarily in it because there's actually a bunch of geeky jokes in there that way. Um, And and so when I say somebody doesn't get 20 percent of it, I mean, like, you know, maybe you're the person who's worked in restaurants all your vegan restaurants all your life, but you don't have the geology. Or maybe you're a person who's like really familiar with Buddhism, but you've never really been about anarchists, you know what I mean? So that's what I mean. I don't mean a sort of dumbing down question as much as, you know, there's a lot of sort of extra white noise in the book that's not white noise if you know what it is. Um, But for me as a writer, what I realized is if I dialed Della's voice back into something that was more accessible, that I wouldn't, I couldn't write her, you know, that like I had to write her on full volume basically. And, um, and so, so everything really tied into, into that, you know, that it's a world where, where nothing is, you know, where the answers that everybody presents don't work for her. And, and it starts in that point. And I am so sick of political novels being, or this idea that you know under there's some sort of freudian wound that once solved will you know make the world okay and, uh, you know, I ran into that a lot when people were reading the book and they were like, well, we really need to know what makes her tick. You know, it's like, what do you need? I'm not really sure, you know. Uh, and I've seen the book reduced a lot of times to people who are kind of like, well, oh, well, it's because her sister died or something like that. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's, that's not why she's like that. There is a real desire to um, depoliticize her feelings and look at them as sort of, oh, it's just transference, you know, it's displacement.
0: Right. But w- I mean, I feel like one of the reasons that we've been friends is that both of us are very critical of the left and also loyal to the, to the, yes. to the, like lo- loyal to the values and the beliefs and the aspirations and not loyal to the practice and the institutions and the mess of the reality of it. Uh, and. Uh, and I feel like that that tension comes across pretty elegantly in that book. Um, and i'm 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 sort of curious about what point in the process you had to start wrestling with how to resolve that tension and what you were you know, whether you were concerned about like uh, audiences mis- misunderstanding it or you know, enjoying it for the wrong reasons.
1: Well, I'll tell you, here's where it came up. You know, there was a difference between the second draft and the third draft. In some ways, it was very small, and in other ways, was very profound. Um, and and the difference between those two drafts, for the most part, other than just tightening up some of the writing, uh, was all about correcting for audience reads. Um, ironically, you know, I'd had... I found that with novels... Sometimes fixing, you know, people go like, I don't know, it just doesn't have momentum or it doesn't go here or I don't, you know, they'll make these big sweeping statements that seem to be problems with the entire draft of something. And, you know, the fixes for that, uh, when I showed people a third draft, um, like, I don't know what you did, but it's so good. It's like I put one paragraph in chapter four where she called in a bomb threat so you'd know where it was going. That's all I did. One paragraph changed the entire book for you. Like, and then when you start to realize how people read, they're reading for cues. And then once you realize they're reading for cues, you're like, oh, there's not a huge problem with the lack of a love affair or like this or that. You just don't know what to read for. So you're feeling disoriented in the process. Okay. So you need a cue. So sometimes I go back and put in one line, just it's kind of puts, you know, okay. So think about it this way. You know, one of the things I run into in my nonfiction sometimes, and I think any writer who can run into it is that, um... You don't really want to talk about, or, you know, say I don't want to talk about, like, get all bogged down into, like, you know, why I left home or why, you know what I mean? I don't want to get bogged down into that. But I have to say enough about it that people aren't sitting there the whole time going like, well, I still don't get it. Why did you go? You know what I mean? You have to, sometimes you put in information to move it aside. There's a character that the main character has sex with who's a man, um, and she has sex with him at the sex party party. Uh, good place to have sex with people. And, uh, he shows up in the ending and in the ending of draft two, just the fact that he shows up in their friends was enough to sort of have like, Oh, it's sort of the return to the heterosexual norm. And like, they're going to get together and it's going to be fine. You know, I had to take his name out of the book. That's what I had to do. And I took two of his lines and I gave it to Annette instead of him. And that's all it took. It took, I pulled out two places where he had been named and I, I moved two lines over to another character and that whole arc was gone. Um, but I realized that, that they, you know, sort of narratives that people were already reading where you know they're adding a lot on to it and so it's you know i did i'm very aware when i get to a certain point about because i want it to be the book i want it to be you know and so to do that i i need even though to me he wasn't in the end he was in the end in the way like yeah they're friends she's capable of having a friend that was the extent of my thinking but because he was male because he was named because of the tendency to look for an ending that sort of resolved in that way, because there was all this pressure.
0: Whenever anyone has sex once, they know true love from then on.
1: Right. <laughs> and, you know, uh, the other thing I, uh, I would say, OK, so the end of Zazen was a big issue for me from the whole way forward in the book, because I knew that I could not resolve that there were no, there was that I was writing myself into a corner. And I knew that from like maybe chapter two and I just kept doing it. And, you know, um, you know, because I don't know the answer to Della's questions, right. I don't actually have that answer. And, uh, you know, I knew it, could not be, Oh, she falls in love and, you know, gets more mentally stable. And I knew it couldn't be, Oh, she blows herself up in a big, you know, bonfire of whatever. Uh, And I knew it, could not be, Oh, she learns to appreciate the smaller things in life. And you know what I mean? Like I, there was no real answer. There was no way I was walking her into a corner where there was no way out. And, and what I did was that there was no way out without undercutting the character and the work of the book. Um, So the answer in the end was to change the question she was asking so that the question that gets answered, isn't the one she starts out with. So the first question is, uh, you know, it, you know the the thing I think about the book, the reason I read Zaza was this question of can you sit still on fire? Like when everything's wrong and there's no good move, can you just sit there and burn? Can you be present and burn? Like what does it mean? You know, so the question that she comes into the book with is sort of Lenin's question of what's to be done? You know, what's to be done? But the question that she ends with is are you in or are you out? And that's a different question, and that's the shift that occurs in the book.
0: And uh, can you tell the story about your Dance with HBO.
1: Oh, well, you know, it was a short dance. It was more like I don't even know if it the, qualifies the, as an actual the,
0: dance. The thing is, the thing that I really want to get is 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 the what, Game the, of Thrones, the, the Game of Thrones thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so yeah. Um, I, uh, there was a talk about, you know, being able to go to HBO talk about a potential series Zazen and I had drafted up some very rough ideas about it. And I met with, uh, one of the vice presidents of programming, uh, original programming over there, very nice man, um, had a very brief meeting with him, but what, uh, the way, you know, he sort of said our you know. Doors open. Uh, Now, normally when I hear that in a union context, it has a totally different meaning. But, you know, uh, but he sort of said, you know, we like your writing. We like the mood. We like the voice. Pitches Oz and pitches anything. But maybe you want to get paired with a producer who's more familiar with television, come back in and do it that way. It might be easiest. So it started this whole thing of let's pair me with a producer and my agents who are very wonderful people, you know, but they were going to the top, you know. So they went to Carolyn Strauss, who's HBO head at one point and who did the wire and the sopranos and but but what she's really her big thing now is Game of Thrones and uh, and Carolyn read uh, read the book and sent back uh, a note that basically just said zazen is too bleak a world to ever set a series in producer Game of Thrones <laughs> and I just remember feeling like this was a Russian lit you know, like I won a prize, you know, I mean, she's writing, she's, she's producing a series set on a permanent winter where every single character is slaughtering their way through the rest of the world, you know, but Zazen is too bleak a world to ever set a series in. Uh,
0: Do you think of Zazen as a hopeful story?
1: I think it's a story about, um, yes, here's how I think of it as a hopeful story. Um, this is a character who's sort of heartbroken, um, by her, her own hopelessness around the world that she sees. And I don't think she ends that way in the book. Um, I think that, you know, her ability to be very vital is there in a way. Um, but I don't think there are answers You know, and that's why I say it comes back to that, like, are you in or are you out? I think when she's in, the possibilities do start to exist, you know. Um, And, and, you know, so not hopeful in the way of, you know... (sighs) And I think it is, too. I mean, I got asked about the last lines in the book and that question of, you know, my big concern with it when it came out, two things was one, it would not be in any way a satisfying end to anybody. And two, bigger, it would be misinterpreted radically as a kind of like, well, I just decided to, you know, feel better about things, you know, and and that. What I really it's wanted to get at was this a positive attitude, right? Right, and what I really wanted to get to was that this is actually a really fundamental burning decision. Like I decided to like, I decided to love it anyway, you know.
0: One of the, one of my questions. So you wrote this this great essay about the about the this truck stop killer, and or that's what that's what GQ called it. Uh, what. What was interesting to me about it was that you were—it was, it was uh, uh, clearly going to be read as this sort of lurid, sensationalist story, and you were trying to make a a deeper argument about memory and about women's voices. Yes. Uh, And and I I just wanted to hear you talk about that.
1: Well, first I have to say that, you know. For me, very, very quickly, you know, I mean, the piece was always about the women. And I sort of feel like we have this whole culture around serial killers where, you know, they're they're Hannibal Lecter and they're so special and we care so much about like their particular ways of being hideous human beings. And on the other hand, they're actually really common and uh, not nearly as creative or smart a lot of times as the women who are crossing their paths who may have run into five or six of them in it, you know, already. Right. And if, if the TV show Dexter
0: is any indication, the population of Miami is about 30% serial killers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I really liked um, learning about these different women and the story really emerged out of, but I went into it really dreading doing that piece. I never felt good about doing it it was a rough piece to do. I was never, it took me weeks to get talked into doing it. Essentially, I approached it like I was going to the gallows. I mean, to the point where in the end, when we hit the final, went through fact checking, like a week or two after it gone to print my editor there at GQ and I were talking about something and he said, Oh my God, I've never heard you sound excited. And And I realized that for three months of working together he had never heard a tone in my voice of any excitement. And I said, I wasn't lying to you when I told you I didn't want to do this piece, you know. But it was also I'm somebody who is very animated and can get very excited and can get very wrapped up. And this was somebody who really had never even heard that despite hours and hours and hours of discussion because my feeling about that piece was so um, conflict. I was so conflicted and so, you know, hated doing it so much. Um, Now, I also want to say this, the, from the GQ gave me the space. I had two editors because one was leaving and one was coming and they worked together so that the process would be smooth. And, and they gave me the space to just like they said, you know, take three months. They made it possible for me to go interview the people I needed to do. They didn't stand over my shoulder, they didn't say anything. And then when I turned it in and they got back to me, they were like, this is about the women. And the great thing about these guys is they were just like, yeah, so we go with it. You know what I mean? Like they really, the only thing that got, you know, it was Donovan Hone who came up with the idea of entitling it Highway of Lost Girls, which is how it appears in Best American Essays. And in all of the editorial, because my piece went at 14,000 and we were about eight when it finished, um, all the things that they took out, none of them... To my mind, none of them undercut the fact that this was about the women. I mean, I felt like there were days where both of them would get emotional about different things that either I can think of a couple examples that had happened in my life or in the life of, you know, and they would just, they also pulled a photo and I will be forever grateful to them for this. There's a photo of Regina Walters that Rhodes took of her where he's got her dressed up the way he likes to kill women and, you know, she's completely sexualized and he's cut her hair and, you know, he's photographing her minutes before he kills her. And it's just a horrifying photo and she's just, it looks like a movie shot, you know, and the GQ art department was going to run that photo, right? Cause it's what sells, you know what I mean? Like it's a pretty dramatic photo. And I, I asked him, it was just like, please don't, if you run that photo of her, she will, Everything I do in the article to try to make these women like not what he made them is gone. So instead, they ran a really average photo of Regina Walters in the back of her mom's car at 13 with like long hair. And I was so grateful for that. So I have to give GQ. I think the piece would have been much more harmed in a woman's magazine in terms of trying to get at my emotional feelings about everything and I, I actually think GQ did a great job, despite the fact that I hate Truck Stop Killer. And I cried for two days when I found out that was the title. And that was not my two editors who came up with that. But
0: Well, so, I mean, we we, we have talked about this in in uh, relation to Zazen and people potentially wanting to adapt. it. And we've talked about this in relation to what people might want to do with this story. And we've talked about it in relationship to this piece that you're working on about the Tlingit Indians uh, that... I feel like you are very protective of your stories. Uh, in in some, way, you know that, that that you have a vision of the story that you want to tell and how you want to tell it, and what you want to get across, and don't want it. Are, you know, you are are willing to turn down enormous sums of money and success and fame and fortune uh, in exchange for someone letting someone get the story wrong.
1: And That's... It's, yeah, it's a combination of things. Um, I. I don't, I do struggle in general with this idea of what's my story to tell and what isn't my story to tell because all stories contact other people. And, you know, I, I value, um, I I worry about, I want what I, my greatest love in fiction or nonfiction is I want people to see themselves and, and kind of, I try to be a very compassionate writer, even though I'm very um, critical at times. Like, my hope with the left in Zazen is that, that, you know, that people see themselves, even if it's kind of hurts a little bit, but that it's not unloving. I mean, for lack of a better term about it. And there are stories I'm interested... You're
0: not David Horowitz throwing the left under the... You know. Right.
1: Well, and there are, ter- there, are, there are stories I really, really want to tell, but they might cause pain to somebody else, and so I don't feel comfortable getting into it. And then there are stories that are mine that I really hate the way one version of it could be, um, but I'm not actually that interested in telling my own story uh, because it's not that interesting to me. So uh, there is something that, that came up where I might use some of the information or writing that I have that I might write on, uh, something that has to do with the GQ piece. But it's, uh, in a way that I could, I could, uh, see doing it artistically that makes sense to me. Um, but it's a different, you know, so I just kind of, if I feel skeevy about it, I'm not going to do it. If I feel like I just, yeah. So I don't, yeah, it's, it's complex. It's for different reasons at different times is what I'm saying. I consider everything separately.
0: So okay, so let's. Uh, you're saying I'm uptight, aren't you? Uh, no, I'm saying that you're principled uh, and coward. stubborn. I'm a coward and stubborn. Um, <laughs> the uh, okay, so let's. So uh, you and I go to winter to occupy San Francisco.
1: Uh, <laughs> okay.
0: So this is this is during the height of Occupy. Uh, my friend Haya Swanheiser was trying to organize what ultimately became a successful Occupy SF Arts and Performance Series. Uh, we went down there. It was you and me and Haya and W. Kamau Bell. It was drizzling. They had us under a tarp. The drum circle didn't want to stop drumming, and. Uh, the San Francisco police have been using the sit-lie law to arrest the Occupy San Francisco protesters. I had a joke about the sit-lie law, so I thought I would build morale at the, at the encampment by uh, telling the joke. Um, <laughs> Occupy changed everything. And because they were using the sit-lie law in Occupy San Francisco, I thought I will go down to Occupy San Francisco and tell this joke to them, and it will build morale, through, and I'll tell the joke through the human microphone. Uh, now, at Occupy, because you can't get a sound permit, you use a human microphone where people repeat what you say so everybody can hear it. So I go down there and I start the joke, uh, and I say, they passed the sit-lie law, and everyone repeats it. They passed the sit-lie law. And I thought, his name was Robert Paulson. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I get to the first punchline, where it says 100% of crimes committed by people who are not lying down, and they repeat it and the people laugh, and before the laughter dies down, somebody goes, what about rape? (laughs) And I said, thank you, good night, everybody. (laughs) A couple things there. Uh, I am not primarily a rape comic. Uh... (laughs) That's not my genre of comedy. Uh, It is some people's genre, it's not mine, so I don't come equipped ready for lots of rape repartee. Um, Also, uh, uh, and I don't want to belittle anything, but based on my limited understanding of rape, uh, typically the rapist is not the person lying down. Uh, I am open to constructive criticism of the logical underpinnings of my jokes, but I think we can all agree that this particular joke holds together. As you and I are walking away from that, uh, and uh, you, you turned to me and you said, you handled that very well. I wouldn't have been so nice about it. I said, well, what would you have said? And you said, uh, what I would have said in response to what about rape is, we're talking about crimes. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, I remember that.
0: And I said, "Yeah, I would never say that. That would be, I would, I would go straight to hell for saying that. You could say that, but I won't, won't say no, that." No,
1: I would go straight to hell too. But it was it, the thing is the reason I I said that is, um, you know, I, that moment was just like, what about it was from such an uninvented, uninventive, reactionary part of the mind that was about dragging people down as a as a means of power. And there's, that's not something you're actually reasoning with. And, you know, I just, I felt, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, it was just one of those things that, um, I don't know why I said that, but I mean, I was just mad. I was mad on your behalf. I remember Kamau sitting there was, you know, uh, he was sitting there was just like, what about rape? It's like, it was just the whole tone of everything. It's like, that's right. You don't want humor here. You don't want a joke here. We're not talking about rape. You know what I mean? It was just so, um, it was so typical of a certain political mindset to, you know, uh, that I guess I just was in a more aggressive mood that day than you were, but yes, well, you're right. You never would have survived. We're talking about
0: crimes. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, but you know, I mean, I think what that speaks to, and I think, I think you really see this in Zazen and, and some in our conversation is that you have a, uh, you, you have a pretty dark sense of humor yes. and, uh, and Zazen is funny, but it's not silly. And I've been thinking about this a lot about comedy recently, like, you know, the fact that that uh, movies like Her and American Hustle got the nominations for Golden Globe Best Comedy, that a lot of, you know, and not say The Heat or This Is the End, these like big, broad, goofy movies, and that there's something to me that's really interesting about like being in that in that uh, bandwidth of, you know, the 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 humor. You know, humor that's more directly tied to pain, in a, in an honest way, um, th- that I in in my own comedy wrestle with all the time. And I just w- wanted to, as a closing question, ask you, how what kind of thought you've given to that?
1: I think about it a lot. My two favorites, com- my two favorite comics, and the people I think about as sort of you know touchstones of of comedy for me when I'm writing are Dostoevsky and Kafka. Um, both of Dostoevsky in particular is fucking hilarious and crime and punishment, crime and punishments. It is, it is. And it it took reading it twice to realize that the first time I read it, I was completely obsessed with Raskolnikov and like everything that was happening and the sort of the whole story and the intensity of it. The second time I read it, I realized there's another character in there, Razumikhin, who's actually making fun of Raskolnikov's intensity and seriousness, and his sort of you know, intellectual crises that he's creating consistently throughout the book you know, and, and the only reason he's in there is because Dostoevsky's also doing that, you know, and that the way that Dostoevsky is funny is sometimes having three horrible, horrible moments between people taking place all in one scene where somebody's like banging their head on the table at the same time. And they're all in the same when you realize they're all in the same room, you realize this is a comic mind. Right. And the comedy that's going on is the comedy of the human experience. Right. It It's each each individual act. is not funny but there is something horribly funny about the humanity of it. You know, there is something, it's dark, but it's, um, yeah, uh, maybe (laughs) it's just not funny to everybody. When I was in, I was in Europe recently, and I was reading in the uh, Netherlands and a very well-meaning, uh, interviewer and writer, a guy named Hank von Streit. And, you know, he was very nice and he'd read Zazen and he liked it a lot. He was very impassioned about it. And we were on stage and he was doing an interview and he said something about the bleakness of the world. And, and we were talking about that for a while. And at some point I said, you know, I have to say the book is also funny. And he looked at me just totally straight and he goes, I do not believe this. And he was, I said, no, really it's, 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 it's funny at places. And he looked at me because I, I saw this nowhere. And to me, it is a very bleak book. And and so I was actually defending like, no, no, really. And he's like, I, I don't, I don't see this. It was like, he wouldn't agree with me at all. I mean, I can understand that, but it was very, he really, you know, and I had a friend who read it twice and said the same thing. He said, he read it twice and he was just, the first time he read it, he was very caught into the dilemmas of it the second time he read it out loud to his wife he couldn't stop laughing and i think it's that once you know where something's going you can see the rest of it and uh that's my favorite kind of comedy i don't i can't always pull it off but that's what i love it's absurdist but it's not silly at times i hope
0: right uh well thanks a lot vanessa you're you're one of the great one of you're one of the greats oh god (laughs) <laughs> I'm not, I'm not specifying of what just your
1: Yes okay. as long as there's as long as the potential lies ahead, I think right. I'm okay.
0: One <laughs> of the greats of people I've known, certainly. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, NATO. So, okay, this has been the NATO Sessions. I'm NATO Green. This is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the Jewish Community Center, uh, produced by Dan Wolf, uh, with technical assistance from uh, Alex Falcone in Portland. Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. See me do stand-up every Wednesday at the Business of the Darkroom Theater in the Mission. Follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks a lot, everybody. Take care.